You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Well, we're in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, when I am teaching uh, through the summer, both in here in the library and in the dean's class for a couple of times, I'm going to focus on the Sermon on the Mount. I realize this is going to be sort of a, a moving feast of participants, I realize. So we'll try to, every time, kind of bring people all together into uh, the sermon. Let me read the first... Uh, section of the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, and then we'll pray. I'm reading in Matthew chapter 5, verse 1, and you see it listed there on your sheet. Matthew 5, beginning in verse 1. Listen carefully, this is God's Word. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountainside and sat down. And his disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. And blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Lord God, we ask for your help now with uh, the word open and our minds open and our hearts open, that we might receive your truth, your love by your Holy Spirit to the glory of the Father and in the name of the Son. Amen. The Gospel of Matthew is built around really five uh, sermons. Uh, Those five sermons uh, kind of make us think that, kind of draw a parallel between Matthew and the book of Deuteronomy. The book of Deuteronomy is uh, Moses' sermons to his people, and the Gospel of Matthew is kind of a parallel. In fact, when you think about it, uh, the first five books of the Bible Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy are somewhat parallel to the first five books of the New Testament. uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and Acts. And those you can think of sort of a parallel between those those two sets of five. And the book of Matthew kind of lines up pretty well with the teaching and preaching of Deuteronomy. Five big sections of sermons in Matthew And this is the first one, the Sermon on the Mount, followed by the Sermon on the Mission, Sermon on Community, Sermon in the Temple, and the Sermon on the End of the World. Uh, And in a way, all the narrative, the story 
of that gospel narrative kind of circulates around those five messages. I've, for years now, been attracted to the Sermon on the Mount. It, it, uh, in the 90s, I wrote a book entitled The Easy Yoke. And I wrote that book on the Sermon on the Mount partly because I was concerned about all the kind of bad counsel that Christians get on what it means to live the Christian life. And I felt we needed to go back to the basics, to the fundamentals of really how Jesus taught us to live this life. And, uh, and I, you know, in Matthew 11, which we quote often here at the Advent, come to me all you who are weary and burdened and take my yoke upon you, learn from me, I'll give you rest. What does it mean to live under that yoke? Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. And the yoke, you know, I think that's transcultural, no matter how urban we may be and uh, how it may be some time since you've actually seen a yoke. Uh, we know what that means. And we know what it means to be, uh, in a sense, harnessed to God hooked up to God. And Jesus offers the image of the easy yoke as an image of living life that uh, is under his teaching and under his rest. Uh, and it's a picture not only of being yoked, but also a picture, I think, of freedom. I've come that you might have life and you might have it abundantly. Uh, is not a contradiction to the Matthew 11 passage of uh, putting yourself under the easy yoke. Uh, I also think that when Jesus says, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, uh, I think prime example for what it is to teach what Christ has commanded us is the Sermon on the Mount. So I see a lot of you know, key biblical texts, like the Matthew 11 passage, the easy yoke passage, the John 10.10, 10, the abundant life passage, uh, the Matthew 28, the great commission passage, and uh, all sort of being coming back down to the bedrock teaching of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. So it becomes really important, I think, for Chris Christians to grasp, well, what is he teaching? What is the shape and the model and the contours of the Christian life? When the Apostle Paul says, I beseech you, brothers and sisters, by the mercy of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service of worship. I think this is what it means to be a living sacrifice. Uh, that Jesus works that out in the Sermon on the Mount as to what that means. Uh, on the left column there, as you see, uh, don't let that confuse you, but the last time, remember, we, we did a, a quick survey of the whole sermon, and those bullet points there, to me, sort of graphed, at least mentally for me, they've got something behind them in terms of the shape of the sermon. Uh, so just like under the 12-minute message, the recap, to me, this uh, sermon, uh, 
you know, I, part of what I do in, at Beeson is to teach preaching. And to me, this is a model kind of sermon. Uh, one, I find it striking. And, you know, I didn't get to Israel until 2015. So I've spent most of my life in my ministry, apart from the experience of walking in Galilee and, and going to the site that has traditionally been the place for the giving of the Sermon on the Mount, which remains still very rustic. I mean, there's a, a Roman Catholic uh, convent and, and kind of shrine on the hill uh, that Jesus uh, traditionally gave the Sermon on the Mount. But outside of that, it's surrounded by fields. Um, and when I was there, I was with 10 pastors, and uh, we walked from the site of the giving of the Beatitudes, the Sermon on the Mount, the whole sermon, we walked from there through a farm. We asked the farmer for permission, a farm. And uh, it started to rain really hard. And it's not real high, but we were slipping and sliding all the way to the Sea of Galilee. Uh, you can see the Sea of Galilee from uh, the site. And, uh, and I picture this humble, fairly agrarian, um, slow-paced, quiet, somewhat serene geography is the site where Jesus gave the Sermon on the Mount and he was seated. He was seated. Now, how charismatic can you get seated? You know, it's, it's just interesting the, uh, what, what does seated imply but a conversation? Because you're not shouting and you're not doing kind of uh, what sometimes preachers do with their bodies and with their voices. You can, you can only be sensibly, only so um, energetic and animated, seated. And I think there's something about that um, the voice level, the body posture, the face-to-face -face contact, the eye-to-eye that, that implies, you know, I'm, I'm speaking to you, to your mind, and to your heart, and, and I'm not trying to override your mind uh, by appealing to your heart. I'm really trying to talk to you uh, reasonably, sensibly, intelligently, yet emotionally. He's seated with his disciples. And he begins with, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Um, now, if you flip the page, remember I, I said last week that um, we're hearing the Sermon on the Mount today in the secular age when perspectives are really different from the worldview that Jesus spoke into. When he spoke these words, he spoke into a world that was largely shaped by a fairly firm conviction of a living God and a God who had spoken and a God who commanded uh, and people that lives were structured around the law of God. But things have changed now and we live in an age where most people think it's more mature to 
believe in nature alone and in a kind of radical materialism. And, and so our view of, uh, of people has changed. You know, the, uh, referring to Charles Taylor, the poorest self that is open to God and open to his, the law and open to the fact that life is defined outside of myself to now the buffered self that has, is taking upon himself or herself the, uh, the reality of defining life. I make up my own understanding and my own meaning. I create meaning. That's really different. Uh, and views of society and, and time and, and the world. We talked about that last week. But remember, I made the point that um, I think in any culture, at any time, the Sermon on the Mount would be radically countercultural. No culture would this be at home in. No culture shaped by the, the natural human instincts and the human condition and our depravity such as it is. No, no culture would find, oh yeah, this is ours. This is where we are at home. Uh, this is different. This runs counter to it. That I think makes it easier to realize that all cultures uh, kind of stand before this uh, sermon and are tested, countered by that. Uh, in the middle of the page, on page two, according to Jesus, everything we've ever been told about getting ahead in the world is wrong. And I just quickly run through a contrasting image with the Beatitudes. Reading that centered portion, the world says, believe in yourself. Jesus says, believe in me. Right there. <laughs> right there. Um, our elementary school kids are being taught in most settings, most public settings, believe in yourself. Jesus says, believe in me. I mean, right there. The world says, strive to be number one. Jesus says, the last shall be first and the first shall be last. The world says, winning isn't everything, it's the only thing. Jesus says, he who finds his life will lose it, and he who loses his life for my sake will find it. The world says, don't get mad, get even. Jesus says, love your enemy, pray for those who persecute you. The world teaches, stand up for your rights. Jesus teaches, lay down your life. The world teaches us to assert ourselves. Jesus teaches us to deny ourselves. The world teaches us how to get ahead. Jesus teaches us how to give ourselves away. The world says the one with the most toys wins. Jesus says you can gain the whole world and lose your soul. So the promise of the easy yoke and its relationship to the Beatitudes is what I seek to cover now. Um, on page three, you have the blessings and the Beatitudes, and you have a text box. And that text box asks a question. And this question, I think, is really important for getting our, our, our footing in understanding the Beatitudes. Are the Beatitudes a character description of the fully committed follower of Jesus Christ, or are they a description of the hopeless condition of the human race? Do the Beatitudes describe the good life or the tragic life? 
Do the Beatitudes describe the good life or the tragic life? Is Jesus using the Beatitudes to demonstrate the availability of the kingdom of heaven to all people, regardless of how down and out they may be? Or is he using the Beatitudes to describe the quality of life inherent in knowing God? So there's eight fundamental character describing aspects in Jesus' Beatitudes. Number one there, he begins with this eight fundamental emotional attitudes, eight convictions of the soul, eight character qualities of the inner person. And he begins with blessings, not demands. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, how do we determine what he means by that? Blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Dallas Willard is um, uh, is in heaven now, and has, for many years was uh, uh, a wonderful um, Southern California professor who really had a, a, a wonderful understanding of Jesus Christ. Uh, but I differ with him when it comes to his interpretation of the Beatitudes, and that's what I want to explore with you for the next few moments. Uh, in his book, The Divine Conspiracy, Dallas Willard argues that what we have here in the Beatitudes is a description of the lost, of the down and out, the uh, the hopeless, uh, people who yet God's grace is for them. Uh, let's see if we can describe some of that. Uh, and you can look. Does anybody not have an outline and would like one? Uh, there's a couple here. Number two on this uh, page three, Dallas Willard contends that the Beatitudes are lists of human lasts who at the individualized touch of the heavens become divine first. The gospel of the kingdom is, the, is that no one is beyond Beatitude, beyond blessing. So here's a description of the bottom of the barrel. And yet God blesses them. And these are the per people for whom God seeks to bless. Willard sees in the Beatitudes the hopeless blessables. He was announcing heaven's availability to hopeless cases, to the homeless, the unemployed, the disabled, the inner city child, the emotionally starved, the lonely, the incompetent, the stupid. The Beatitudes emphasize the availability of God's grace to those whom the world judges to be damageable goods. In other words, blessed are the spiritual zeros, the spiritually bankrupt, the deprived and deficient, the spiritual beggars, those without a wisp of religion when the kingdom of the heavens comes upon them. So just look at the list, these eight Beatitudes, the written off, the spat upon, the sat upon, the rotted on. It's interesting, Willard writes, that Simon and Garfunkel got Jesus' point in their old song, even though many of us scribes miss it. The Beatitudes can be summed up in their line, blessed are the sat upon, spat upon, ratted on. 
Willard gives several reasons for choosing this interpretation. He describes a woman who came to him after he had spoken on the Beatitudes. And she told me that her son had dropped his Christian identification and left the church because of the Beatitudes. He was a strong, intelligent man who had made the military his profession. As often happens, he had been told that the Beatitudes, with its list of the poor and the sad, the weak and the mild, were a picture of the ideal Christian. He explained to his mother simply, this is not me. I can never be like that. But is that what we're supposed to do with the Beatitudes, Willard asked, be like that? Frankly, most people think so, but they could hardly be more mistaken. More common than such outright rejection of Christianity, so understood is a constant burden of guilt, conscientiously born for not being or not wanting to be on the list of supposedly God-preferred. Okay, so what... You probably shouldn't turn the page so quickly and, and continue to read. Um, how have you responded to the Beatitudes when you've heard them? The idea of blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Uh, blessed are the peacemakers, for they too will receive the kingdom. How has your response been to these Beatitudes? Of which many Christians are familiar. Jim? I've always viewed them as a position of great strength. In what sense? Elaborate a little bit. A godly man or woman uh, who possesses these are powerful. You know, the meek are restrained strength and, uh, and the dependence on, on Christ and, and the Lord. And with that, uh, you, you can be used to do great things for the kingdom. Okay. Has anybody felt put down by these Beatitudes? Like, I don't want to be like this? Dennis? Yeah, I think it's impossible. You think it's impossible in, in what sense now? Impossible more in Jim's sense. Uh, as a human being, uh, I, I don't see as a human being myself able to have the attitudes as they're expressed. Well, but that that's very different from Dallas Willard's take on these Beatitudes, right? This is the bottom of the barrel. These are the poor and the dejected. Even those who um, are, are, are seeking, um, i get the number right, blessed are the pure in heart for they will see God. It's a, it, Dallas Willard's interpretation of that is that these are the Pharisees. These are the Sadducees. Even they are open to the grace of God. Uh, so he twists that sort of pure in heart. Interesting, because Dallas Ward is such a widely read evangelical and really so good in so many respects. Catherine? I guess I must be one at the bottom of the barrel because this gives me hope. It does. The, 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 the attitudes really gives me hope when I read it. I really love reading it. So you can't get below this. <laughs> no. <laughs> and you see here, you know, we do have kind of different, Shannon. I've always thought of it as, well, always, certainly since being here especially, we confess we're miserable sinners. Mm -hmm. Every one of these things describes every one of us in my mind. And so we're all in need of, in spite of our being what 
that's described in the first part of each phrase, we are saved anyway. Well, how about the person in this scenario, in this account that Dallas Willard gives of uh, a military man, intelligent, strong, who is not about to classify himself as mourning, poor, meek. That's not me. Charles? I always felt that way, that it's very difficult to strive to fit in these categories until you get down to the merciful and, and beyond that. But to strive to be poor and mourning and meek uh, well, the, it's okay. Again, we can strive to hunger and thirst after righteousness. But those first two or three are difficult for us, I think, to say that's what we want to do. And it's interesting that you are saying that whoever you quoted there is not saying we should strive to be that. He's, he's saying that, that those people have that fit in that category, which is really all of us, are fortunate that God smiles on us. No one can be so poor as God's grace is not available for them. Uh, No one can be so heartbroken, so much in grief, that God's grace is not available for him or her. You see, there's, we're you know wrestling with two kind of different orientations to this. So the question is then, how would you go about defining what Jesus meant by the poor? Do you take that as a free association with whatever is in the cultural mentality as the poor? And that's the group? That's the identity of the poor? He says the poor in spirit. Yeah, and Luke says poor. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but, but where do we go to understand what Jesus means by mourning, by poor, by pure in heart? Well, this is about your soul, yeah. not well, physical it's surroundings. Isn't it? Well, it's it's really a you know, the Bible's more holistic than that. It, it isn't just inside. It's who you are. Um, All I need to do is go look in the mirror. That's as far as I need to go. Now, Catherine, that doesn't answer my question. <laughs> I can't go look in the mirror uh, to find out who the poor are. Uh, I get your meaning. I understand that. But did Jesus preach in a vacuum? What defines what Jesus means when he speaks? Turn to Psalm 34.6. Well, you who have Bibles are a privileged group. (laughs) Psalm 34.6. Psalm 34, 6 reads, This poor man called, and the Lord heard him, and saved him out of all of his troubles. I'm going to suggest to you that the the context for understanding each of these Beatitudes is rooted in the Old Testament. Jesus is preaching. 
the Old Testament. So poor isn't defined by your culture or by our free associating with things in our culture or our life or even the mirror, but what is being taught in the Old Testament. So when we come up on the word meek, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. What's going to define meekness for us? Well, we're going to go back to the book of Exodus and find Moses described as the meekest man on the whole earth. Moses. You would not have characterized him probably as meek. The meekest man on the earth. But it's a meekness because who is he looking to completely? For guidance and direction and complete obedience and immediate obedience to the word, God. It's meek vis-a-vis God. Not a milquetoast personality that can be walked all over, a doormat kind of person. No, it's, it's a complete openness to God and doing what God would have him do may require a great deal of strength and confidence and courage. Uh, what does it mean to mourn? Uh, again, we... We can go through Old Testament passages that show that mourning is not just feeling sad or disappointed or brokenhearted or disheartened. It is mourning for my sin, the way I have grieved God. It's a specific kind of brokenness, a specific kind of poverty. It's a poverty in the sense of I know I know I am have to be completely dependent upon God. So we might even phrase this uh, differently, writing it today within the light of our culture, although I'm, I'm not advising that. I think we've got to stick with what's defined by the Old Testament and not say, blessed are those who understand that they are utterly dependent upon the living God because they will inherit the earth. They realize they have no self-sufficiency within themselves. They have no strength within themselves. Their strength, their uh, sufficiency comes from God. And that's what that means. So yes, you can aspire for that. Very much so. You can really come to terms with your sin. I can come to terms with my sin. I can hardly think of that beatitude, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted without thinking of um, David Connor, specific person uh, in our uh, history. Uh, This is when I was pastoring in Bloomington, Indiana, and uh, David did not at that time attend our church um, and was a very nominal Christian. But I first met him on invitation of someone else to go and meet this grieving person. Um, uh, David was uh, in his car on a Saturday afternoon having had too many beers and was passed on a curve by a motorcyclist. And he was provoked at that and sped up uh, to pass the motorcyclist. Lost control of his car, ran head on into another car, with uh, a mother and two children, um, and everybody in that car was killed. Uh, Overnight, David went from being sort of an average worker, average father, to an individual that was Hitler personified. 
in our small community, uh, he had killed a mother and two children. Um, and that's when uh, I got involved with David, and uh, and over time, um, you know, I felt his mourning, his grief. Uh, it could not have been greater. His face actually took on the the curves, uh, the uh, wrinkles of a cry. Uh, he was a very, very broken person. I've never seen anybody grieve more for what they had done than what David did. And he embraced the gospel in the midst of that grief. Um, this is now uh, like 30 years ago. Um, David's still in that church now, the church I served. Became an elder. Um, a long road of, of healing. Um, and I don't know. I, I would have left the community. I don't think I could have taken it. Um, he stayed there. Um, and uh, I think that's what comes to my mind. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Uh, it's good we got bells here, isn't it? <laughs> or I might just go on and on. <laughs> uh, and uh, so the big idea here is that the Old Testament defines what these beatitudes mean, and these beatitudes are not a means of grace. They are a state of grace. You come to the place of acknowledging your dependence upon God, not by your effort, not by your achievement, not by your good thinking. You come to that state of grace by God's grace. Um, and so we don't confuse these as a ladder to salvation. We understand that this is the place where God brings us so that we receive his salvation and receive his grace. Well, to be continued. Lord God, please bless us in this week. Help us to represent you faithfully, thoughtfully, lovingly. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.